right. Welcome, everybody, to the Matt Ryan All Roads Lead to Real Estate podcast. And so we came up with a name the other week, so hopefully everyone understands uh, and, and enjoys that title. And so here we are on our uh, fourth attempt. I believe this is our fourth one. Is that right? Our third. Look at me. I'm losing track already. You would have thought I had 3,000. So we're on our third. And so uh, I have a special guest with me today, and it's somebody that I know in my uh, personal life who's helped me in um, in a financial um, matter as part of my life. And so I want to introduce Peter. So Peter, can you say hello? Hello. Glad, right. to, glad to be here. Well, very nice. Well, Peter, Peter Wilkinson, he is a financial advisor, and so he has taught me quite a bit. And so I have a few financial advisors in my life. So if you're listening or watching to this, watching this, and you're one of those lovely people in my life, I had Peter here, um, and I'll be asking some of you uh, in my life uh, to future um, podcasts. But Peter has a unique um, experience set, and he has an interesting background, and he has been able to explain certain financial products to me in a way that I felt I could actually understand them. And that's hard to do. And so I have clients that I've brought this up as we strategize and plan as it relates to real estate and wealth for them. And as part of that, right, I don't want you to put 100% of your money into one asset class, which is real estate, even though I'm passionate, I love it. I have a lot of real estate, but it's not something you should put 100% into and so Peter's here to help explain the other side and what um, different insurance products can do and some annuities and so I think it'd be very useful because he does it very well and so Peter I wanted to welcome you to the show thank you Matt thank you so much for joining me and your accent beats mine all day so everyone's <laughs> in for a pleasure there and for a treat and so um, so Peter just introduce yourself if you don't mind and help tell everybody what it is you do and uh, and then we'll just go back from there certainly. Um, uh, Peter Wilkinson. Um, I was 22 when I came into my industry. Um, it's something I wanted to do several years before. And um, I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, in the first office where I worked and loved it from the very start. And where was that first first office? It was in Lancashire, England. Got it. And... Um, Lots of different types of uh, clients, people with money, people with little money, um, but I enjoyed helping them with their needs regardless. Um, I was full of enthusiasm. I loved it from the start. And then a few years later, I met a young lady who was visiting the city, my city, and ended up following her to the United States and restarted my um, career as a financial advisor in Baltimore. Well, wow, interesting uh, selection of city, but I know you followed your your love this way. Well, there's a reason. She was uh, moving to Kennedy Krieger for her fellowship. Got it. Is she still there now, or is she? She is. Um, she'll be returning to the workforce at some point soon, but she is her um, career as a physician. She put on hold as we had our children. Very nice, very nice. And so as you kind of explain a little bit about your background, so now that you're here, so explain, so you're a financial advisor. So what does that mean exactly? Uh, My interpretation is to learn as much about each client and their set of circumstances and what's important to them 
as possible. And choosing from the market um, the vast array of, of products and different companies' versions of those products um, to put together plans that meet their needs. And it's important to look at all of the different insurance companies and all of the different financial companies because no one company can be all things to all people. And some of them may have a particular focus for a certain industry, a certain age group. Um, others may charge more for that particular age group because they don't want them. And it's important not to choose from one company's products because you cannot be doing the best job for your client doing so. And how many years would you say you've been doing this line of work, would you say? I know I'm putting you on the spot here. January will be 30. 30 years. Okay, so you've seen some some of the different markets that we've yes. had over 30 years. And, and so what company do you work for now? I'm an independent. Okay. And um, I have worked for certain companies. I started with a company called Prudential in England. And I worked... Uh, at the Mass Mutual office in downtown Baltimore, which moved to Hon Valley. And then I became independent simply because the um, a lot of what they have are, are terrific in certain circumstances. Um, but it's important to be looking at other insurance companies for all sorts of other different needs. And therefore, being independent is the better way for me to work. And for those of you listening that have experience hiring and um, working alongside financial advisors, they have different fee structures and they have mm -hmm. different goals in terms of their business model and how they operate. And so I thought, felt that was kind of interesting the way that you choose to operate your business. So what don't you do, should I say, and what do you do when it comes to um, assisting clients? What don't I do? Um, or what I, well, Put I'll another way, do you manage money for a fee? I do not. Okay. Yes, I do not. And a lot of your colleagues do that, correct? I mean, that's a major way. They do. And the, re the reason I stopped doing that is simply because the, uh, the knowledge gap between an advisor and a, um, a person seeking financial services is much smaller these days. If they have a 401k plan at work, they can go onto a website and look at their risk tolerance. And there's a pre-planned portfolio of funds. It's not that they're trying to guess that it's all programmed for them. Um, I, I felt that I wanted to spend my time on the areas where I can make a big difference for them uh, rather than taking a fee for uh, things that are not that sim not that hard to do if they simply look at the website on the benefits department at the employer. And what do those financial advisors typically earn for helping to place them in a in a bucket or into a predetermined you know mixture of stocks and bonds they i think they the typical is one percent right. on top of the cost of the platform and the cost of the funds within that platform and when you add it all together um fees matter cost matters over a long period of time they really matter and I found myself telling clients that, um, you know, if, you, if you're doing that yourself, it's not that difficult. You don't have to pick really, really fancy funds. 
if you're buying uh, consistently and write the right things and they're diversified and allocated properly, you don't need to be paying 1% to an advisor. And anything I can do for them, no matter how hard I look for high quality and low cost, it's always going to cost them more. And more over a long period of time uh, makes a big difference. And I've, I've done the financial calculators. They're out there, they're online, where you can put your fee associated with the amount of money you're investing. And yes. you can look over the compounded fees over time. That's mm -hmm. what you mean. And so if you look over a 20-year period, 30-year period, yes. it is dramatic. Yes. I mean, hundreds of thousands, and depending on how much money you're investing, it could be even more that you are are having, you know, go towards fees. Yes. And because all the money you're paying in fees, you're not reinvesting in your investments. I agree. And so I just thought that was interesting. That is unique. I don't hear many advisors that don't also offer that service. And for your reasons, it it just, it struck me as being a little different. So that's good. That's good advice um, for all of us to think about. And so, um, and so what products do you choose to, well, I should also say, who are your typical clients these days? Typical clients um, over a long period of time have been physicians simply because my wife's a physician. Mm -hmm. And when I came to um, to a new country, um, I would get to know other physicians through her and then other physicians through them and lots and lots and lots over time. And so not necessarily anything different about physicians, um, but I found working with a, a, um, a certain uh, profession their needs are often quite similar, particularly if they're, they're similar age, getting started and, you know, finishing their training, getting their first proper jobs. So it wasn't relearning an entire different industry every single time. Um, but as the years went on, as well as physicians, I work with all sorts of people and actually really enjoy getting to know different industries and different uh, people in different um types of jobs and with different needs. And I find it a little bit more challenging, which is a good thing. Well, and one of the, the things that I realized years ago, it's that even when someone has a great education, they could potentially have a great job. Their, their financial education, when I speak to them, I mean, what's your experience? Is it typically better than you would anticipate? Or is it sometimes on the other side? It's a little bit shocking how, how much they still need to learn when it comes to finances. And I, and and this isn't this isn't a um a criticism because particularly with physicians all of the time the long hours they put in um there's only so many hours in the day so it's not that I'm shocked that they know they didn't know what I I told them. Um I think it really drives home that an advisor who is trustworthy is important to these people because they don't have time to be looking this stuff up themselves. Um so no criticism for them not knowing all of this. They they had an awe. They had yeah. enough to do in their long days. Yeah, and it's it every walk of life, every occupation, not just physicians, but I I serve a lot of physicians, and I've because our proximity to so many great medical centers. Yes, and so I've have a lot of clients that that do that for a living, and and they are just like the rest of us. And so they uh, it's not taught in school. Um, mm -hmm. I have a finance degree, and I think what I learned. In, in my business school um, pales in comparison to what I've learned once since I've been out 
And so learning about the corporate structure and learning about what they do, I can read a return and I can read mm. statements that companies put out, but I don't know the first thing about investing in real estate. I didn't know the first thing about the insurance products and the annuities and all the different options that you sell. Mm -hmm. And so it's like piecing them together as you're an adult out there in the real world. And, and what I've learned is that the earlier you get this understanding, the better, because yes. you have time on your side. Learning yes. about this when you're later in life, you're at a big disadvantage. Yes. And so Absolutely. I'm grateful for what you've shared with me to help educate myself and my family and protect us. And so one of the things I wanted to start with, it would be related to just the type of products and why. So if I was just listening to this, if I just started speaking to you, how do you describe not just physicians, but just all of us, right? So what are the options that we should be aware of and be educating ourselves on yes. and learning about? I think the the first um, first things to, that I deal with um, from bottom moving forward simply is, is the fact that um, we have a certain amount of money coming in um, at some point, it would be nice to have saved sufficiently enough where we're working because we want to and not because we have to, or we, or we decide to stop working because simply because we can. But in the meantime, most people think that the most valuable asset they own is the house. Um, in my opinion, I think it's correct to say it's not, it's their income because income drives everything. And so we need to be, you know, paying for things that we borrowed yesterday. We need to be paying for our living expenses today. And we need to be putting money away for the future. And therefore, before we start saving, um, my focus is to make sure that the protection side of things are in place. The foundation is built. And the, the first step most people would think, well, that's life insurance. It's actually disability insurance simply because when you look at the cost of term insurance, a lot of people think, gosh, it's it's really, really cheap. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. I'll come to that in a second. And they think disability insurance, that's much more expensive. Again, it's not. There are appropriate um, rates or, or prices or, or premiums to pay for the different risks the insurance company is, is taking on board. And so a perfectly healthy 35-year-old for a 20-year term insurance policy, it's going to be very little because the risk is minuscule for the insurance company. Um, a doctor who is um, performing surgery on a day-to-day -day basis, um, the, the risk of them becoming sick or injured, particularly injured in such a way that they cannot do that with their hands, is far, far greater, and therefore the price is not expensive. It's appropriate for the risk they're taking on. Um, so disability insurance, number one, because um, it's the thing that is most likely to take away what people can least afford to lose. But how do, does someone, I guess it's challenging, because how, how many people out there have disability insurance that aren't earning significant income? Does the average working Joe out there, do they typically have this type of insurance, or is this really reserved in your experience for people that are high income earners? So most companies will provide some sort of uh, group policy. 
And the things that an awful lot of people don't understand about it is they think my income's covered because I have my work takes care of that is often um, what people think. The problem is um, indiv- group disability insurance provided by a company, um, it's not cheap and they're looking to keep the cost as low as possible. And that type of coverage usually has a coverage cap. So if someone has relatively low income, the percentage that group coverage normally covers is 60, 60%. Um, but for people who are earning more in that company, 60% of their income of their income. Yes. So if someone is earning, um, in the same company, 50,000 and someone is earning 250,000, if the coverage cap is $10,000 per month, which is quite typical, then the person earning 50,000, 60% of their income is less than 10,000. So all of their income is covered, but at at a rate of 60%. And then they'd owe taxes if if applicable on that money. The person earning 250,000, 60% of of 200,000 is 120,000 a year, which is $10,000 a month. And therefore they've got 50,000 that is not covered. Mm-hmm. So not only is it only 60% of their income, it's only 60% of 200,000 of the 250,000. And this is what people don't quite realize. Plus they owe taxes on the benefit because the the employer has written off that cost as a as a um, an expense for tax purposes. So the insured pays the taxes. Mm. So sadly, a lot of people realize how little they have in place when they go to make a claim. So part of my job is to point out how all of this works and let people make informed decisions based on, you know, in a position of knowledge. Right. And I mean, it it reminds me that sometimes we don't know until we need to know, and then it's oftentimes too late. Yes. And I can say in my world, I am, you know, the sole income provider in my home and I'm a high income producer and to be honest, even these conversations we're having now, I'm thinking I do not have this coverage. And it's something you've mentioned before, and it's not inexpensive either. And uh, I'm just a realtor, so I think you've mentioned that that I fall into a category that's a little unusual, uh, right, compared to other high-income earners. It's unusual simply because insurance companies like people with set salaries, where this is what they earn and that's what they earn and it's not variable and it's not based on market conditions and that kind of thing. So insurance companies don't they don't want to overinsure someone and I suppose in industries where market conditions change like I suppose they are a little at the moment or commission that's an understatement. commissions commissions yeah or commissions change if someone has a really outstanding year and they have put the coverage in place based on that really high income, but then things fall off in later years, then suddenly that person is in a situation where if they go on disability claim, they might actually earn more than they were actually at work in an industry they're not really enjoying as much because they're not earning as much. And that's mm. what they want to try and avoid. So that makes sense. track record in, in your industry is really important certain amount of years of track record and interestingly enough is it's not just that they will issue more coverage 
but they give you a, a, a much more preferred occupation class. So they have things like um, the lower the number, the more risk it is to the insurance company, and the higher the premium, the higher the cost to the insured. Mm. Something I mentioned earlier about no one insurance company or financial institution is all things to all people. There are certain um, insurance companies that we don't want realtors as, as policyholders. But if they insist on paying our high premiums, we'll gladly accept them. But they're charging an awful lot more. Other insurance companies will offer a um, an occupation class commensurate with a an accountant for a realtor, which is the other the opposite end of the spectrum. is is a very uh, much lower cost occupation class, and one of them does. So what you're getting at, it's a benefit that you don't have a specific company that you're attached to is that your clients are able to understand their needs, their occupation, their income, what they need to cover, right? Yes. So they have to understand how many, if they have children, if they, what, when they intend to retire, all these things, yes. right? So there's not a one size fits all option. Absolutely. And you can search and determine where is most appropriate. Yes. So I like that about what you offer and, and the way that you do it. And so the other side, so disability you mentioned first. So what's the next thing? So I want to have a conversation about disability in the event that something happens to me. What's the next conversation I have to have with my financial advisor? One of the questions I ask, one of the first questions I ask new clients is, who are you responsible for? And... It's usually a th it's you know a question that provokes some thought and a, and they say well I'm gosh my family you know and then they start thinking about it a little bit more and then there might be their parents less so but it's usually usually the the family the you know the spouse and their children first and then so other questions to ask that seem it's everything is common sense but yet not everybody does it this way. That, you know, one of the next questions would be, um, we've talked about the income that they earn. If you weren't here to earn that income, how much of you, how much of that income would you need replaced for your family? And most people actually say, well, all of it. Um, so then we can reverse engineer into the correct amount of, of life insurance that they need. So we can determine we ask the question, well, how long would that coverage be needed for? It's not something to assume. It's important because every family is different. Every situation is different. So it, to clarify, we have jumped from disability to life insurance. Yes. Got it. Yes. Um, so life insurance wise, um, if they, um, if, a, if a person is earning $100,000 a year, for example, and they said, well, we'd need 80,000 of that then and we'd need it for you know the, the children are really young um we have a long time until we will be at the point where we're working because we want to and not because we have to and therefore we need that coverage in place for a long time then picking the picking the amount of life insurance that they need is quite simple a reasonable rate of return for um, if the life insurance pays out, it has to be turned into income from this lump sum, otherwise it'll get frittered away. So if 4% was used, um, perhaps that's appropriate, perhaps it should be lower. 
I don't think it should be higher though. But if four percent, if if four percent is going to be dripped from this this life insurance amount, and it needs to equal eighty thousand, it means we need you know four into a hundred is uh, is twenty five. We need twenty five times eighty. We we need two million dollars. Well, I think you've gone, because you do this every day, I think you've gone three steps ahead of me. I think I have. Because I think the average person listening to this is exactly like I was, that doesn't understand what an insurance policy can do. Yes. What the tools are that they, because I just, I just assumed, okay, I'm just going to get some term insurance. If I die while I'm young, I have, it's, I get, it gets paid out, right, to the folks that I have that are going to be the beneficiaries and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. That's the purpose. And so one of the things you first explained to me is that that insurance comes in different shades. Mm -hmm. And so we have term that, correct me if I'm wrong, it's exactly as I describe. You, I think you've signed me up with a 20-year 20, yes. 20 policy, mm -hmm. which is very affordable. It's a few hundred dollars, mm -hmm. and it's a million or two million dollars. It's something, yes. but very reasonable. And, uh, and so that's very affordable. So then the other side is whole life. And whole life insurance i believe is what you were just referencing and from what i understand if you do a google search everyone that's listening is going to agree oh my lord this makes no sense why would i do it it's a scam and it no one needs it and it's a joke just get term and invest the rest yes that's what i've always been told until a couple financial advisors that i trusted that i thought were just salespeople, and i consider you one of them explain to me the value of those type of policies and why very smart, wise, wealthy people choose them for tax mm. purposes, for planning, estate purposes, all these reasons. Yes. So let's start there. So let's explain what whole life is and why in the world it gets a bad rap. Very good questions. Yeah. Just backing up slightly, what I was talking about is how the proceeds of life insurance in general would be used to produce income if the person had died okay so we hadn't got quite quite to the point where so my my point is when determining life insurance it's not getting to which type yet it's getting to the correct amount oh you're just talking about the face amount yes correct amount for for this particular family uh and the so and death benefit situation specifically yes. so that's the first criteria is understanding if in the event well, I guess not in the event, we're all going to die. So it's just uh, at the time what what the face amount of that benefit would be. Yes. And then we would get to the composition of that death benefit, how it should be structured within different types of policies, whether it should be all term insurance. And so you're, you're right, it does have a bad rap. Um, and for good reason in, in some ways, but in many ways, uh, it's a shame because the people who should have it don't have enough and the people who shouldn't have it have too much interesting and i think i have a few reasons can't wait for you to explain that further in my in previously in my career as a financial advisor i also taught uh, a class every two weeks on wednesday mornings and most of the people who attended the class were younger and I was a little uh, surprised at some of the cases they brought to me for advice on that they were pushing, for want of a better word, whole life insurance, and I advised them not to. Um, and I think that uh, maybe younger advisors are trying to 
make it in the business and they think by selling a whole life policy uh it may it means they're going to make it um i i don't think that's i don't think that's they're the gonna make way. it because it's more profitable for them is that the purpose is that yes and what happens is the person has a hundred thousand dollar whole life insurance policy a lower income family for example um that they can ill afford at the expense of having the correct amount of death benefit in place and that's unforgivable in this industry but it happens and so if i was selling whole life insurance and i switch tomorrow and i'm going to be a financial advisor in general what can i expect in terms of commission what's pretty standard across the industry uh the the companies that don't have the track record that don't have the track record of dividends that add to the rate of the add to the return add to the cash accumulation pay more um in my experience it's it's roughly 40 to 50 percent of the first year premium is received by the advisor and then if they share it with others then so be it is it accurate i've heard that usually there's a it's front loaded so the fees for financial advisors that first year two three years they it's the bulk of the payment and then there's occasionally a trail so if they're gonna be on you know have this policy for years mm -hmm. they get maybe one percent or a small amount into the policy until they stop paying is that about right yes and the industry has changed actually in recent in just um probably the last 12 months were the upfront cost to the advisor is much, much lower, but the trail has been improved, which I think is a good thing. Because the cost it's or the benefit, the payment, the, the commission? It's, well, the, the structure of how the advisor is paid, I think is going to be more in line with advisors making sure that it's the right thing for the client to do in the first place because to, to be paid properly, that they, they want to be in the industry for a long time, they're going to get a better trail for a longer amount of time. If these people are looking for a, a quick commission and then they fail out of the business, they're not getting all of that trail. And therefore, the way, that, the way it's paid, I completely agree with the changes. And the only reason I mention it and I bring it up is because I'd like the transparency to understand essentially what you're getting paid and when and how and why all these things i know in my industry what i get paid is on a piece of paper yes and everyone gets to see it it's not a hidden fact they understand it's very black and white mm -hmm. and so it can make for some uncomfortable moments um but with my i've had previous financial advisors i had no idea what they were earning they certainly didn't tell me and they didn't tell me that on this policy i can make double what i can make on this policy and I know in real estate, there has been quite a bit of discussion about, especially on the buyer side, understanding what I can get paid if mm -hmm. I sell you the house here or the house across the street, because they don't always offer the same compensation. And so wouldn't it be nice to know as a buyer that if I was going to sell this home, I'm going to earn double what I can earn across the street? Because I, you might question some of the comments being made by your sales professional. Yes. And so it's just, I think it's important for people to understand when it comes to who's helping advise them where they're making their money so it is a whole life is more lucrative to sell than term that's a that's a state true statement correct uh 
I think that um, not necessarily. Really? I suppose where I'm going with that is if they put the correct amount of death benefit in place, they're not going to earn that much. It's not going to be that much of a difference. And But by, I suppose, younger advisors trying to get a whole life policy in place for whatever reason, if they sold a term insurance policy for the correct amount, there wouldn't be anywhere near the difference between the two. Um, so the people, my I have very clear views as to who um, who should be considering whole life insurance. Um, first and foremost, uh, the correct amount of death benefit should be in place first before we even get to that conversation. Um, but if if we have to factor in several things, we have to factor in income tax bracket. Um, I believe that um, people should be maximizing the contributions into their 401k at, at the very least to get the full match from their employer before they do anything else, because that's free money. Um, just backing up slightly, um, rule of thumb calculation that people should be saving between 20 and 30% of their earnings per year to get them to the point where they can float on their own from their savings. How often do people save 20 to 30% in your experience? Um, that seems awfully high. It is. Seems and, ambitious. And it's also inclusive of the employer's 401k contribution. It's not all of their money. It's money from their employer to their, that contribution is included in that 20%. But 20 to 30, 30 would be at the very high end, um, not many, 20, a lot more, um, some some in between, but mostly, most people are aiming for that, but they're falling a little below 20, they might be at 15. But And I, I think those percentages are challenging for me to to, to grasp because I, I serve people, at, I've sold multi, multi-million dollar homes and I've sold $200,000 condos. And to tell someone that is living virtually paycheck to paycheck yes. to save 30% of that money, they'd say, good luck. Like I have, you know, I like food with my meals. So it's just not in the cards for them. And it's, uh, you know, but I think being extremely intelligent and I have a family right now that I'm trying to help buy their very first home and they just chose to go on a vacation and they spent 50% of their down payment money on the vacation. <laughs> And now they're no longer qualified. And so under, and I, I'm certain they haven't spoken to someone like you. And so they're making decisions sometimes out of order. Um, but I guess at for anybody, you want to you ideally hit that 20 to 30% mark and find ways to live within your means. And I think 30 really comes from people who are starting later. Okay. And they, they don't have the years that you mentioned, which are so important. So the sooner you start, the better. Um, but 20 is, 20 is usually the aim. It doesn't mean that people get there. They, it makes them aware of what they ideally would be setting aside, but we have to live now also. And it's, we don't want to be saving and not doing anything with our lives just for some time tomorrow. And, you know, some people don't get to tomorrow. So there's a farmer in Howard County that you know, lived, uh, I think he retired it. My brother would know if he was here, he's going to correct me, but he, he lived and he farmed and he finally retired, finally sold. And 
He was going to live well. He sold. He made a couple million bucks off of his land. He find, you know, lived very modest lifestyle his whole life. And I'm I'm pretty confident uh, that he he literally died the week he he cashed out, and mm. he he choked on a steak. And choked on the steak. That was it. That was his big. Th- it was just. It was so ridiculous because he finally, uh. you know, he fretted over selling that farm forever, and he finally was going to enjoy the relaxation of retirement, and that's what happened to him. So living a little bit while you're on this journey is important. So the twenty percent, Matt. Let, let's say twenty. You know, um, then we then we have to work out. Well, where does that twenty percent come from? And so, in a four hundred one k these days, you can put twenty two and a half thousand starting in two thousand and twenty three. So there's where the first part of it should come from, and hopefully there's a match from the employer. So, so it really it really. You'll see where I'm going in terms of income is important. The level of income is important as to whether whole life insurance is something that should be considered or not. Okay. So if if they need to be setting aside 20%, 22,500 for an awful lot of people, if they just maximize their contributions into their 401k, they've they've satisfied that 20% and some. In fact, then they won't be maximizing their 401k. And if I, I don't, if I was in a in a four hundred one k plan, I don't get taxed, correct? Or do I get taxed? Explain how that works. A four hundred one k plan is a um, is tax deferred growth, so you can choose these days. You can choose to have a pre tax, and therefore it helps now. Um, so that twenty two and a half thousand would be removed from your income for tax purposes, as if you never earned it, which a lot of people are going to be looking for that the way things are going at the moment. Um, so employers have Roth 401ks and they have 401ks. So you can have the pre-tax and, and most, some employers actually mean they, um, allow you to split it between the two to have something that makes sense right now because we need it, but also something that will make sense later where we've paid the taxes on this money now. So we don't have to pay the taxes on it later on when it's grown to. And that's a Roth, correct? Yes. So a Roth, you're going to pay taxes on today and then put it in the Roth. Yes. But then when you take it out, it's tax-free. It's tax-free. So if you expect to be in a higher tax bracket later on or equal, it's nice to have some money that's already been taxed and you don't owe anything. I've heard another advisor describe that as prepaying your tax. Yes. And so you can even convert some of your regular, if you have IRA or something else, you can convert it to a Roth and pay your tax. And so as it continues to grow, you can withdraw it tax-free, correct? You can. And you're also, you're also not, um, you're not paying taxes on what it's grown to. So I, I use a, an analogy in, in England, um, there's a famous horse race, which is similar to Preakness. And, you know, you could put a small little bet on this kind of thing with five pounds, 10 pounds, there's a betting tax. If you pay the betting tax, which might have been one or two percent on your wager, and um, your horse won, your winnings are tax-free. All of the winnings, which will be many, many times the wager. If you did not pay the betting tax on the wager and your horse won, you pay the betting tax on all of your winnings. Mm. So in a similar way, so you're not paying, you're paying the betting. So with a Roth style plan, you're paying the betting tax on the contribution to not have to pay the ta- the betting tax on what it's grown to over 20, 30 years. 
So that's so those are two things people should look into. And so getting back to in an effort to keep it relatively concise, because I think I'm so fascinated by all of this, I could sit here for two hours and talk to you, which I have before. <laughs> and so going back to insurance and going yes. back to whole life. So explain, kind of pick up where we where I interrupted you before. So yes. Um so if they're putting the money into the 401k plan, next port of call is, well, let's fund IRAs for both spouses. Um, but for the high, high income, high, high income earners, it's still not enough. That still doesn't equate to 20% of their higher income. And therefore, they're the people who have to think, well, where next? Where else do I save? And if they're relatively young, ideally, in relatively good health is great too. Um, they have a life insurance need, number one importance. Um, then perhaps they should consider having some of their life insurance in a whole life sort of plan. And it's, I think also one of the things that gives this product a bad rap is insurance agents either don't know how to design a whole life insurance policy using all of the different riders to enhance the cash accumulation and everything else. And they just put a plain vanilla whole life insurance policy in place. And most of them you pay for indefinitely until you die. If you if you reach the age of 120, you'll be paying for it until then. And that was my first policy. Before I met you, I had purchased a policy, very expensive policy, and I would have paid for it forever. Yes. And you analyzed what I had and said, boy, that looks expensive. I think I used an analogy and I thought that was probably a good one for Matt because he's in the mortgage industry, um, the real estate industry that uses mortgages. And I said, it's a little bit like a 40 year mortgage versus a 15. So whole life insurance and mortgages have many similarities. The quicker they're paid for, the less they cost by a lot. And in a similar way that, so instead of whole life where you pay for it indefinitely, it's a little tricky to be withdrawing cash, you know, cash funds from there to do fun things, whether it's to supplement retirement or the markets down in retirement. And instead of taking from a, from an account that's lost some value. Well, see, I don't, I think you've already jumped. I didn't know that was an option either. Mm. So what you're describing, I think, a lot of people don't understand that yes. even that is a tool within these policies. So it has a death benefit. Yes. Whole life. Mm -hmm. And if I were to take a sound bite, how I would set you up is explain to me what a whole life policy is and all the features and potential riders are. The way, the way I like to set them up is um, the shortest amount of time that, that is comfortable for the, for the client to get it paid for, whether it's 10 or 20 or 15, uh, it might be longer than that. It's important to have the correct amount, and it's also correct to have the correct amount of whole life, if it's appropriate for this particular person and their family. Um, but we have three things. We have the premium is, is set and it's fixed. Um, we have guaranteed cash building. We have the dividends of an insurance company adding to those gains every year. So it's not something that, gosh, you know, um, it's a tough year in the market. My 
my life insurance has gone down. It can only go forward. The question is, the only question is by how much is it going forward? And that's basically down to what is the dividend. And dividends are, tra- are linked to in, uh, interest rates. And therefore, interest rates have been really, really low recently, starting to climb. So usually there's a lag of a year before those higher yielding bonds are bought and put into the life insurance company's general account and then the dividend tends to rise a year later there's a year lag um but the cash accumulation is is building the death benefit is growing because the dividends every year is adding to the death benefit adding to the cash accumulation so the question is um why why does it have a bad rap um some companies the cash accumulation uh People find out they've bought something that they didn't understand, that they didn't want, and they cancel it. And the cash that they get back is less than they've paid Which in. is what I did with one of my yes, first policies. I suppose so, yes. And I found out it was the wrong policy. I canceled it, and I had about a half of my money, maybe a third of my money yes. is what I had returned back to me. Yes. But I only owned it for two years. Yes. And so what you instructed me and you showed me through illustrations, and I recommend everyone have this experience with their financial advisor or call someone or call you. And so there's a death benefit at the end. So that's a guaranteed tax-free benefit. And without life insurance, I can speak from my own life experience that when I lost my father, I was in fifth grade. If we (laughs) did not have life insurance in in place, we would have lost our farm. Uh, It would have changed our lives immediately and forever uh, financially. I would never have had the opportunity to go to college. It would Mm -hmm. have changed everything. And so that's the only thing that protected us Mm -hmm. was having life insurance in place. And I still didn't know what it really was. I just know it saved us. And so we we received that death benefit tax-free because it's insurance. Yes. And so you taught me that not only does it do that, but there's cash accumulation so when you're paying into it, part of what you're paying into accumulates cash, and that's what you're referring to, the dividends. Yes. And so you get dividends paid on that, and so you get accumulation of cash, which you can, later years, you can borrow from that, correct? You can withdraw, you can borrow, um, you can put the money back, you cannot put the money back. All that, all that happens is whatever you have, it's actually let, let's let's address that point. Most people think you're bar- they're withdrawing money from their own life insurance policy, and it's worth less because they've borrowed from it. What they're actually doing is their life insurance policy isn't affected at all when taking a loan. The loan comes directly from the insurance company's general account, and the policy is used as collateral. I didn't That's even all. know that. Yeah, interesting. Most people don't. It's most people think the money has actually physically been withdrawn from their cash value, and they can they have the opportunity to put it back. But it's uh, the general account. Um, so if they died that year, or they cash their policy in, whatever they have lo- taken as a loan would be subtracted from the death benefit or the cash if they died. Or so if I had a million dollar policy and I borrowed a hundred thousand, what's left is nine hundred thousand. Yes. And that would be then given to my beneficiaries tax-free. Yes. And so one of the things you taught me is that you can actually plan later in life to figure out how much you want to withdraw and when. Yes. And you can start withdrawing and taking a loan against, I guess now, collateral against your policy. Yes. 
And if the dividend is higher than the rate in which you're paying, yes, which I think the policy you gave me is 5%. Yes. And the dividend historically has been seven or so. It's currently six. Okay. Because of low interest rates. And but so if I borrowed 100,000 from that policy against that policy, I would actually have a net benefit of 1% on that money. Correct. And I would then have 100,000. And because it's a loan, it's tax-free. Yes. So I'd have a tax-free $100,000 to use. And if I chose to take it in a year where it was down, let's say, and I didn't want to sell any of my retirement or my 401k, yes. it's, a way, it's just a way to, to, to pull money when necessary. And yes. then you can always, if it's an up year and I have made my money back, I could repay that policy if I chose or just keep withdrawing. I know the policy you gave me is large enough where at a certain point in my life, we can start withdrawing a certain amount that you've given me essentially forever. Yes. And the policy is not going to lapse because there's enough cash value in there to support us. Correct. And I, I can tell you personally, and I know a lot of my clients had no idea. I never knew such a thing existed. Mm -hmm. And especially if you, if you plan this life right, you should be making more money potentially later in your in your life than you are even in your 30s and 40s during your higher income earning years i would say just as just as life insurance gets a bad rap usually from people who have bought the wrong thing been suggested to buy the wrong thing and they realize it's the wrong thing and i'm not so, not so much talking talking about we enhanced what you had and it was early enough to do it and for it to make sense but people who you know, they maybe needed 200, 250,000 of term insurance and they have a $50,000 whole life policy that's doing absolutely no good at all. And they cancel it and they get less money back. That's where the bad rap comes from because it was, it wasn't, there's nothing wrong with the policy. It was a bad application and a bad use of that particular product in a set of circumstances and for a client where it was completely inappropriate. Right. That's the bad rap. If policies are left to cook and and um, tick along, I don't see anyone regretting owning a permanent life insurance policy that's fully paid for, that's ticking along. That if you look at the internal rate of return, even with interest rates as low as they are, when a policy is finished, if you look for the the cash year to year, it's in the region of six, and that's a tax free six. So even if it were, um. You know, even if the internal rate of return from year to year was 5%, people might think, well, I can get more than that in the market. Probably can, but not every single year without risk. That that um, life insurance increase is without risk. It's got the guarantees built in, plus the dividend that's tracked to interest rates. So it's... Well, in the, in the dividends that I have, you're reinvesting those dividends. Yes. And I'm buying more life insurance every year. Yes, exactly that. And yes. for me, my policies will be paid up in full when I'm 48 years old. Yes. And I'll have them forever. Yes. And the debt benefit accelerates because there's more cash in there in later years. And the way that you've designed it is I have, I'll have enough in death benefit, in my opinion, it'll be a substantial amount where... That is my inheritance to my children. Yes. And it's tax-free. Yes. And I know I've lost both my parents at this point and dealing with the state and dealing with all the issues that I had to deal with to get through a trust, mm. the easiest and most simplistic part of any of these trusts were the life insurance policies. Yes. They get paid out 30 days later. Yes. And it was just a check. Yes. And so 
you know, it's, I have, I know another buddy that says, if you don't fly first class, your, your kids will. And so I intend to enjoy myself and go and have fun with my wife and travel and, and, uh, enjoy some of the, the efforts that I've put in all these years. And I'm using these policies that I have with you to augment that and to have stability and options and, and, um, and I just thank you for explaining some of this to me and, and I don't think the purpose of this podcast could ever be to explain every detail. No. It's just there's too much. And because so much of it specifically has to do with an individual's income and their goals and their needs and their everything you described, it's just, it, it's challenging. But I, I hope this serves as a reminder for you to have these conversations. Yes. So if you're listening, you need to go out there and have these conversations and and see what options there are and how to protect yourself with disability potentially and mm -hmm. what type of insurance. They, so not everyone needs a whole life policy, right? So no. oftentimes term is the right decision. Yes. Um, if, if the life insurance need is short, term insurance, absolutely. Um, it's, re it's really if someone is in one of the higher tax brackets, has a life insurance need, um, has high income, is maximizing their 401k IRAs and it, and but still needs to save more that's when it comes into consideration and there are certain things that that help enhance this particular product and that's one what we've done with you and that's a limited pay contract so the premiums required for it to be fully paid for are squished and compressed into a 20 year period of time it can be a little longer it can be shorter the second thing is the dividend is the, the dividend choice is paid up additions as opposed to paid out in cash. It buys a piece of a chunk of paid for life insurance that adds to your existing policy. And therefore, when the dividend is announced the following year, you have more ownership of the policy and therefore the dividend is larger. So you're getting dividends upon dividends, higher dividends because of the previous year's dividends were reinvested. Um, a limited pay contract compresses the time period taken to pay for the policy, um, dramatically reduces the aggregate cost of the policy, and increases the internal rate of return. And there are certain other riders that can be added at, at other times where we're able to add a, a cash lump sum into it without turning it into a, a taxable vehicle. It's certain certain amounts below a certain level. So if I had a big bonus or if I had, so I could, could dump that money into my policy within, that you're describing? Within reason, yes. Years and years ago in the 1980s, people with no death benefit need whatsoever would buy a small policy death benefit wise and dump in enormous amounts of cash. I think it was it you, someone told me that even on Wall Street, these high yes. income earners would get a huge $100,000, $200,000 bonus and they just dump it into these policies yes and and what's the purpose of that what why would someone do that uh asset protection tax-free um back in the 1980s if you remember interest rates um were they might have been getting <laughs> dividends might have been in the in the teens back then mm -hmm. and um they could get the money back out uh if they wished to but it was just somewhere to put the money it was tax-free as opposed to that's, that's one of the key points. Um, I don't want to flip-flop on, on subjects, but just to finish a point I was making earlier, for high-income high earners looking for where else do I save, 
it's really that the other investments are going to be subject to capital gains taxes. And capital gains taxes are long and short. Long term is 20% plus state, which Maryland, I believe, is 5.8 plus 3.8 Medicare surcharge, which comes from the Affordable Care Act for high earners. They have to pay another 3.8%. So we're we're at almost 30% for long-term gains. Short-term gains, anything that's cash or bonds, anything that's been bought and sold within a year is automatically short-term gains, which is otherwise known as interest income. And that's added to your income for tax purposes at the very back end. So if someone just tips into the 34% tax bracket, 37, they're paying 37% on that income because mm. they've already had the tax relief on the lower tax brackets on their income. So it's not tax efficient at all. It's um, so that's why that's why that's why life insurance can be something to be considered for people who I've saved here, I've saved here, where else do I save? I'm in a high tax bracket, I'd need to be saving more. That's where it's it, it, it may be appropriate. And if they're young and relatively young, relatively young, relatively healthy, even better. And I'd like to add an additional plug where I think they need to speak to you and understand that. And then they need to speak to a guy like me because I don't know anybody that does both. So I don't know anyone that understands my world. Mm-hmm. So real estate investing and what I expect. Yes. So there are, there are so many benefits to investing in real estate. There's so much opportunity to have wealth mm. for passive income, for your ability to do tax-free exchanges. Yes. When the time comes to, to sell one asset and, and buy another and, yes. and you buy your home, if you plan it correctly, you can buy your Florida home or your next vacation home or your eventual retirement home, make it mm. an investment. And, and then in subsequent years, you can then live in it. And I mean, there's just so many ways that real estate can enhance wealth mm. and it can be a strategy. All the, every wealthy family in the world has someone that's managing just their portfolios on your side and on my side. Yes. And so if you don't have any policies in, in your section with life um, or disability, I think they need to, they need mm. to have that conversation. And I would say, if you don't own any real estate outside of your primary residence, you need to speak to someone like me because I think both are exceptionally important. Yes. And um, and I think we should all have exposure to, to both of these asset classes. That's my plug. And so I just, I see a lot of people with one or the other mm-hmm. and a lot of real estate guys that don't have anything else. Yes. And I know people that just have stocks and bonds and a 401k and maybe they have a policy or two with someone like you, but they have no exposure in real estate. And so I just think being fully educated and know your options and and be informed is such a valuable thing that you, that both of us can provide. Yes. And so we're both passionate about it. So I appreciate you joining me. And so Peter, I'll have your contact information on here. So if anyone's listening to this, wants to connect with Peter and go over your situation, I'm sure he'd be happy to help. And if you want to speak to me, happy to speak to you as well. So that's it. I think we've been running our mouths here for almost an hour. So that's <laughs> went on much longer than I anticipated, but I'm fascinated by it. So I hope uh, uh, I didn't bore everybody to death with this conversation. Me but t- I, Me too. <laughs> but I find it fascinating. And so I think that's it. And this wraps up our episode. So thanks again, Peter. Thank you.